Hello everyone, my name is Derek Hook um, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you all here tonight. Um, I'm a lecturer, lecturer in social psychology here at LSE and uh, the title of tonight's talk is Psychoanalysis Outside the Clinic. Um, it's actually not so much a talk as a three-way exchange between our three participants, all of whom have recently published books which in some ways speak to this title. The topic of psychoanalysis outside the clinic is of course particularly fitting for a talk here at the LSE where colleagues have for a long time wondered about the applicability and the usefulness of psychoanalysis outside of the clinical domain. This in fact is an issue that I'm hoping that we'll have time to focus on and to debate tonight and that is how legitimate is it to use psychoanalysis outside of the confines of the clinic as an instrument, as a conceptual tool to think about political, social, and economic issues. Also, how usefully might psychoanalysis be applied and what is the best way of using psychoanalysis to pose some of these questions? Let me say a few words about each of our participants. Professor Stephen Frosch is pro-vice master and head of the Department of Psychosocial Studies at Birkbeck College. His new book lends tonight's talk its title, and the book is called Psychoanalysis Outside the Clinic. Professor Christian Dunker is a faculty member in the Department of Clinical Psychology at the University of Sao Paulo. He's a practicing psychoanalyst, and his new book, just out today in fact, is entitled The Constitution of the Psychoanalytic Clinic, A History of Its Structure and Its Power. Ian Parker is a practicing psychoanalyst, a professor of psychology, and I think he's also the current co-director of the Discourse Unit at Manchester Metropolitan University. Ian's new book is entitled Lacanian Psychoanalysis, Revolutions in Subjectivity. I'm hoping that we can um, order events by allowing each of the speakers to say something about their book on that topic for about 15, maybe 20 minutes then give each of them a chance to respond to the others and maybe have a little fight or debate and then perhaps we can um, open two questions from the floor. It's important that I mention the annual fund which is the LSE funder who's made tonight's event possible and also just to mention the fact which is perhaps completely obvious that this is also in part a book launch so all three of the books that will be spoken about tonight are outside and for sale. So if I could ask you to give a big warm round of applause to our participants and I'll pass over to Stephen. Um, thanks very much Derek, it's, it's lovely to be here at this august institution. Um, we're going to talk about psychoanalysis outside the clinic but um, in some ways we could perhaps be talking about psychoanalysis inside the university. Um, and I think that, that that's a kind of real moot point. I know that um, LSE has got a very complex um, history and current relationship with psychoanalysis, something which maybe if we can draw Derek into the conversation later, he might be able to say something about as someone who's tried to organize psychoanalysis at LSE for a period of some years. 
And more generally, I think the, the set of issues that confront many of us who've worked primarily in the academy, but also to some degree across between the academy and the clinic, about what, how to think about psychoanalysis and how to integrate it into the sorts of academic activities that we're involved in, is very much um, on our agenda for today. So that's, that's, that's a kind of opening remark. The other opening remark is just to reiterate what Derek said and to hope that lots of people will buy the books because... Um, I don't know about you two, but I get 7.5% um, of nothing normally on these. Um, the other thing I want to express slight anxiety about is that um, what, what Derek didn't really say when introducing uh, my two um, co-panelists uh, as psychoanalysts, which they both are, is that they are both Lacanian psychoanalysts. And Derek is also um, on, well on his way to becoming a Lacanian psychoanalyst. I'm not sure if any of the rest of you have ever been in a group where you are the sole non, well, not only not a psychoanalyst, but actually the, the only one who's not a Lacanian in this kind of small group. But it is a pretty, pretty terrifying experience. Um, and so... Um, uh, it also, uh, by the way, the other thing that this panel demonstrates is the absolute truth of one of the dictums of Lacan, which is the woman does not exist. Anyway. <laughs> Was that all right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let me. I've got to get started. Um, so we've we've been given about 15 minutes each to to start this ball rolling and, and then have our conversation and then invite people here here to speak. And there are clearly lots of people here who know a lot about this topic. Um, I did mention that um, all of us have worked across between the academy and the clinic. In my own case, I worked for quite a long time in the NHS as a clinical psychologist working with children and families um, and gave that up about 10 years ago when I could no longer bear it um, and just sat there thinking with people talking to me about their children, you know, you think you've got problems, what you're coming to me for. And that, that sort of experience, which is I think a very common one that people have after working for a long time, uh, made me think that um, actually I'd like to try and get some distance from it and think about things from the perspective of the academy. The academy, the university has its own issues, but they are quite different from the clinical ones. And it made me realise that um, even though I've always been interested in psychoanalysis as a clinical practice and actually very respectful of it for various reasons that I'll talk about perhaps in a moment. My interest, my excitement about psychoanalysis was never really about its, the, the, this sort of intense, slow activity of sticking with people you know, in a room day after day, month after month, year after year, hearing what they have to say, hearing it repeated and repeated, trying to think about it. Um, I mean, the sheer boredom of that uh, is really intense and, and important. You know, it's very important that it's the kind of boring activity that, that people stick with. And temperamentally, I was always hopeless at that. Um, but also, I, 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 it, it, it never kind of excited me in quite the same way as I got excited when reading the early works of Freud or, of course, the flamboyant social works, particularly of Marcuse or Norman Brown from the 1950s, um, or more ex some contemporary very exciting work on the fringes of psychoanalysis amongst people who use psychoanalysis. Um, from my own perspective in the Psychosocial Studies Department at Birkbeck, I'd mention particularly Judith Butler, who's a visiting professor with us, or Slavoj Žižek, who's um, uh, the director of our Institute for the Humanities. Um, but not, not just them, and they, they of course, are um, ambivalent and ambiguous figures in their own rights. Okay, so 
the excitement was always intellectual, and yet I, w I want to say something here about the kind of grounding of psychoanalysis in the clinic. And I want to start with um, the place that I start with in the book, which is the question about what one might mean by the clinic or clinical itself. Now, um, one thing that, that I talk about early on in the book is the way in which the notion of a clinic is a really quite a complicated one in psychoanalysis. I mean, it has its origins, a very specific location in, in Freud's consulting room in his home in Vienna. But it very rapidly became a metaphorical space, referring to a, a, to, um, a kind of a, a setting for an encounter between a patient who you might simply define very broadly as someone who's got something on his or her mind that they want to talk about. An encounter between such a person and an analyst who's involved in the process of listening to this thing that that person has got somewhere on their mind or in their mind, helping to make sense of it, somehow trying to alleviate the disturbance or distress that that thing, whatever it might be, might produce. Now, borrowing, borrowing the terminology of medicine, partly because of its prestige and its standing, and partly because the early psychoanalysts were almost entirely um, doctors, this, the consulting room became the model for this encounter, and it became defined as an environment of treatment, a mode of treatment. So the, the procedures developed there, for example, the use of a couch for a patient to lie on, the um, regulation of the duration of the sessions in terms of a time, you know, 50-minute hour, the abstinence of the analyst from any undue emotional um, um, over-involvement with the patient. All these things drew on the practices of medicine and came to govern the activities of psychoanalysts as professional therapists. And as time went on, and you can really see this arising from about the mid, from the 19 teens, you know, from about 1910 to 15 almost in particular, as time went on, increasingly theoretic, uh, sophisticated theories about mental life derived from this encounter that took place under these very particular and peculiar circumstances. So the doctor, let's call them him for the moment at least, the doctor meets the patient in a room which gets defined, which is a consulting room of some kind in that the patient comes to, to consult with this person about the thing on their mind. And that's what gets defined as the clinic. That's the clinic. It is that space. Other spaces grew up around it, of course, clinics in the sense that we use them today, the Tavistock Clinic being the most famous psychoanalytically oriented clinic in this country. But the key clinic is that room, that confined space in which two people meet with each other and one talks about something that's on the mind and the other does something around trying to listen to that. Well, this clinical focus is still, of course, characteristic of psychoanalysis as it's the locus of its theories as applied to the speech of individual patients or analysands. So in an, in an important sense, this makes psychoanalytic knowledge artificial in that it arises from and refers back to a very particular situation, specially created to be different from the normal environment of everyday life. I don't mean that, by the way, as a criticism. One of the things I think we do learn from Lacan and many other psychoanalysts is that the kind of contact we all have with each other all the time is a sort of artifice. And you might be able to draw on the artificiality of what's constructed in the consulting room in order to make some sense of other kinds of artificiality. And perhaps with something that's an issue we might be able to talk about later. But what I do want to point out is that it is a very unusual experience, this psychoanalytic experience. It is very unusual to be able to engage in a flow of largely uninterrupted talk with an attentive listener whose role it is to try to understand what's, to be, what's being said 
and to help the speaker speak it more clearly or make sense of it themselves. Actually, without, the, without that last bit about helping the speaker, it's very much the situation I find myself in now. Um, speaking, without, more or less without interruption, although I guess you could interrupt, um, to an audience which, at least at the moment, before I've had the opportunity to put you to sleep, looks attentive and is trying to listen and understand what I might be saying and also what I might be intending to say um, behind the obscurities of my actual speech. That places the speaker in an environment like this in the position of being the, not the analyst, the one to whom transferences are directed, though perhaps that does happen, but actually in the position of being the patient. And you all, at this special moment in your lives, inhabit the position of being psychoanalysts. Everywhere else, these kinds of transactions are pedagogic or instructional or conversational. In the psychoanalytic setting, however, what happens is a kind of exaggeration or possibly something different from any other situation in which someone might speak. So the analyst doesn't aim to teach the patient or make the patient do something, and when the analyst does speak, it's usually with considerable caution about revealing too much about her or his own life. Reciprocity of a certain kind does exist because the analyst tries to engage with integrity in the conversation that they're having with the patient, but mutuality mutuality, equivalence, doesn't exist in quite the same way. So the clinic, just to reiterate, the clinic is a kind of physical space. It's a bounded zone, relatively free from interruption. But it's also a description of a kind of relationship. A clinic is a relationship in which one person makes her or himself available to interpretation by another. And both these people obey a set of procedural rules recognisable as psychoanalytic practice. This means that the expertise of psychoanalysts is primarily in how to deal with patients in, pecul in a peculiar situation, and there's no obvious reason why that expertise should generalize to any of the other very different circumstances in which people might interact with one another. Now, of course, this is nowhere near the whole story of psychoanalysis, that it involves just one, you know, two people together in a, in a room. The clinic's often been extended significantly to refer, for example, to group situations, to hospital wards, to schools, therapeutic communities, learning environments even. And in each of these cases, some core aspects of the psychoanalytic setting might be retained, but others are varied. Sometimes what's retained, what's held on to, is little more than a theoretical orientation that accepts a notion of the unconscious as crucial for understanding motivation and behavior. At other times, for instance in psychoanalytic group therapies, the processes involved may closely mimic the traditional practices of dyadic psychoanalysis. The clinic, in this sense, is portable. Its key element is the speech of the analysand or analysands, interpreted according to the principles of psychoanalysis by an analyst who is present in that live encounter, but occupies a different position, that of the one who is available to think about what's going on without speaking too much of her or himself. The metaphorical status of the clinic is therefore more important than its physical location because it operates as an organizing structure for the relationship between any people who engage with one another in this peculiar but powerful way. So if the clinic can be thought of like that, then what's central to psychoanalysis is not only a specific set of theoretical ideas like the unconscious or perhaps or transference or free association, but also, more, more crucially, a live encounter, of, albeit of a special kind. Now, to me, this liveness seems absolutely critical in the practice of psychoanalysis. 
This is because the capacity of the analyst to understand the patient and of the patient to benefit from that understanding depends on the two of them being locked into a kind of visible relationship which can be tracked and reflected upon. What analysts focus on are often tiny moments of emotional exchange, small slips or revelations, slight changes. Similarly, patients are ever alert to the timing and nuance of comments and interpretations. Psychoanalysis is a kind of microscopic examination of patterns of speech enacted in a relationship of often long duration, sometimes years of meeting several times a week, and hence of considerable depth. In its clinical form, it depends on the actual presence of the people concerned who can explore their interactions with one another as a way of understanding the dynamics that are at work. Without analyst and patient both being there, locked into their relationship, psychoanalytic work cannot take place. So, the clinic out of which psychoanalysis has developed, the crucible for its concepts and its practices, is a metaphorical space surrounding a live encounter. This liveness is necessary for it and integral to the processes that go on within it. Anything else, therefore, is not psychoanalysis. However much appeal there is to the language or theoretical constructs of psychoanalysis. So, for example, and these are issues I talk about a bit in the book, when a literary author's work is interpreted in terms of childhood trauma, it's not psychoanalysis. Or when a political commentator draws on ideas about unconscious national impulses, it's not psychoanalysis. Or when a social psychologist or philosopher uses ideas about intimacy and stability of selfhood to understand identity conflicts, it's not psychoanalysis. None of these intellectual activities, including the writing of books about psychoanalysis, however carefully they employ psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic ideas, none of them are in fact psychoanalysis because they lack the specific kind of encounter that constitutes the psychoanalytic clinic. This seems clear, if not necessarily to everyone's taste. However, it leaves open another set of questions. If the practice of psychoanalysis depends on the clinic, what, hap what does happen when in fact it's taken outside and psychoanalytic ideas are used to make sense of non-clinical phenomena? I've just defined this as not psychoanalysis and yet of course it happens. Even if one agrees that it's not the same thing as being involved in or conducting a psychoanalysis, one might still claim that it offers a distinctive and productive approach to interpreting human actions, social phenomena and cultural products outside the clinic. If the theoretical constructs generated inside the clinic by psychoanalysis have any robustness, why should they not be at least suggestive aids to comprehension of complex events that in their unexpectedness or emotional intensity seem to show the traces of the unconscious? Why vacate the field and have nothing to say just because the context is not exactly the same as the core psychoanalytic setting? Or is it actually the case that moving outside the clinic strips psychoanalytic concepts of their meaning so that when they are applied in this way, they actually produce a kind of nonsense. One of the things I talk about a little bit in the book, that I know Ian has thought about a lot in particular, is whether when you talk about transference outside the clinic, you're talking a kind of nonsense. You're using the terminology to mean something completely other than what it, um, what it, what it is supposed to evoke. Maybe we'll come back to that. 
Anyway, there's a challenge in that to those who would apply psychoanalysis in social and cultural spaces outside the clinical sphere. For example, to literary texts, films, biographies, or social phenomena such as racism or ethnic violence without access to psychoanalysis's characteristically detailed processes of intersubjective contact. I'll give you a quick practical example. Those people who say they are relying on their countertransference when interpreting the speech of research participants involved in interviews, I think are wrong, really. And one of the things that they can't do in that setting normally is to test out their countertransference and the interpretations that arise from it through an interaction with a research participant in the way that an analyst might do in a very different context of their clinical work. If psychoanalysis is a specially staged live event, then it loses its potency and legitimacy in being applied outside its conditions of emergence, the clinical encounter itself. On the other hand, perhaps psychoanalysis' capacity to theorize moments of irrationality and eruptions of fantasy is just too great to be ignored when such moments are visible outside the clinic. And if that's the case, then the challenge becomes not that of justifying psychoanalysis, but rather of deploying it creatively and yet with integrity. Perhaps the way in which psychoanalysis embodies an encounter provides a model for understanding and promoting it, and uh, promoting so understanding and promoting all occasions on which something happens between people, so long as one recognises the possible consequences of the leap being made from the clinic to its outside. I'd like to go on for a couple of minutes, but can I? Yeah? Okay. So, as it happens, psychoanalysis has a contentious but productive history of engagement with the intellectual world outside the clinic, specifically with the humanities and social sciences, since its inception and it's still a widely used yet also controversial element in the crit critical armory of those working in these disciplines. Early forays into literary and artistic theory by Freud and his circle had a significant impact on biographically oriented work and also in opening out a domain of interpretive activity that was new in its orientation and its possibilities. In some areas such as art history, literary criticism, film studies, the effect of psychoanalysis has been profound provoking rich seams of research that touch on fundamental questions of structure, motivation, representation and response. In philosophy, politics, history and law, psychoanalysis has at times provided a set of tools for conceptual work and offered a vocabulary and set of perceptions that have troubled or channeled major areas of social debate like sexual difference in gender studies or feminist philosophy, otherness in the context of racism and various notions of personal and political emancipation as applied in social and political theory. Despite fluctuations in the context, sorry, in the extent to which psychoanalysis is regarded as having cultural currency, it continues to be a significant intellectual resource in the humanities and social sciences, with especially influential recent developments in some major works on art and politics, sexuality, violence and war. In part, this attests to the cyclical pattern of repudiation and resurrection the psychoanalysis seems to undergo within academic settings. But it also shows very cogently that whatever the force of the argument that psychoanalysis really belongs only to the clinic, it has actually migrated elsewhere and become one of the most significant tools available to those who wish to understand the social world. This being so, the issue of whether psychoanalysis belongs outside the clinic or not is of less significance than questions about the effect of this migration. What happens when psychoanalysis is used in this way? What are its benefits for the domains in which it's applied? What are the dangers? What insights are gained? And what distortions are introduced? 
And if this is not to be a one-way street in which the only thing considered is the use of psychoanalysis, one should also ask, what difference does it make to psychoanalysis itself when it's used in this way? Does it learn anything? Does it change? Are its own gaps in understanding revealed? Is it added to in constructive ways? All this is to say that psychoanalysis may have something to offer and it may benefit from this engagement with the outside world, but there is a lot to unpick here and a lot of dangers to skirt. Just to finish off, to say that in the book I give a series of kind of case studies on this topic. I look at social identities in, in social psychological theory, I look at the material on um, ethical relationality that's come from the Butler and Zizek and work on recognition. Um, there's a chapter on psychoanalytic politics and there's a chapter on psychoanalysis applied to my own new base discipline of psychosocial studies. Um, and one of the things that um, I'm struck by a lot in this, which I, I would be interested if we might generate in the discussion later, is precisely this question of the, the kind of feedback to psychoanalysis itself when it is used outside the clinic. In particular, whether there are ways in which the kind of critical edge of psychoanalysis, which often gets lost, I think, particularly in its clinical practice, can be sustained and energised through an encounter with other modes of thinking and with the practices of the social and political sphere where it has been used as a set of ideas with great imagination, even if I don't actually think that is quite the same thing as doing psychoanalysis itself. But I'll stop there for now. Thanks very much. Hello. I want to start expressing my gratitude to Derek, who organized this launch, Stephen Frosch, and especially to Ian Parker and Erika Borman that uh, bring my book into British Britain. I want to speak a little about uh, this book. It is, uh, in some sense, a book from Foucault and against Foucaultian critics to psychoanalysis. Uh, it is a book against the myth of self-birth of psychoanalysis. I try to uh, search the practices that are involved in the starting of psychoanalysis. Uh, this includes shamanism, narrative compromise healing, medicine of the soul, from Hippocrates, Empedocles, Plato, tragedy, catharsis, rhetorics, talking care of oneself, what the Latins call a cura sui, that includes meditation, memory, method, in the uh, pre-modern sense of method. The Cartesian idea of methodological regulation of the spirit, the Kantian exercise of pathology diagnosis, the Hegelian idea of dialectics experience, the literary case construction dispositive. All of these practices are, are in the origin of psychoanalysis. So the main idea is that psychoanalysis came from outside the clinic. From genealogy of the ethics, to the hypothesis of political ontology of psychoanalysis. That's the main idea of my, my text. Psychoanalysis presumes an ontology, and this is a political ontology. There are 
as I try to demonstrate, three main politics and history of these practices that constitute psychoanalysis. The first practice, uh, the, the first uh, politics I call therapy. And it is a technique of change suffering. In Freud, we can locate this particular word to design suffering, or the recovery of suffering, it is genesum. But we have also another uh, politics that is clinic. And clinic is a kind of method to treat symptoms. And in Freud, we have a, a particular word to express things around clinic. And this word is behandlung, treatment. The third politics I try to describe in the book is the cure or the healing politics. And it is a kind of critics of the soul as a destiny to the Unbehagen, the Heilung or Kur in German. As you have in the civilization and its discontent from, uh, from Freud. So, there are some ways uh, to use and to refuse power in this discursive practices. In all these discursive practices, we, uh, we, we can uh, do the history of psychoanalysis. Each politics is defined as an historical surface or a historical discourse, limited by another surface with some regular properties. For example, therapy deals with suffering in a specific strategy of social symbolic recognition, refusing preconstitutive diagnosis categories and taking into account the popular and particular vocabulary of narrative of suffering. This is a regular characteristic of therapy through times since uh, St. Augustino and since the Christian um, uh, religious strategy. In clinic, in mo the modern, uh, modern sense of it, uh, we deal with symptoms in a specific structure of covariance and homogeneity between etiology as a function of cause, semiology as a function of language, diagnosis as a function of transference, and therapy as a function of symptoms. So, to define clinic and to speak about clinic, we have to have these four functions. These are the conditions to have a universal and impersonal vocabulary or discourse of symptoms. Cure, the third politics of uh, composing psychoanalysis, cure or healing, deals with the discomfort or miserability through a kind of ethical experience with truth based, based in inclusion of the anal analysis of power within the healing relationship. Power over oneself, power over the other, power from the other. These are the singular and proper speech of the pathos we have in main core of the cure tradition. For example, the historical case such as the tragedy performance in history of psychoanalysis must consider three discursive complexes. We have a functional reading of catharsis connected with the therapy surface. And so the catharsis is around uh, 
dealing with a problem. We have an integrative reading of catharsis connected to clinical surface. This is a, this is a predominant reading of Freud, for example. And we have also a kind of disintegrative reading of the tragedies and the reading of catharsis connected to the cure surface. Each politics could be defined as an internal contradiction that explains its rules of formation. Therapy surface, for example, is founded in sophist philosophical use of rhetorics in ancient Greek, Greece, or the taumaturgy, political religious cure practiced by the kings in the Europe during the 16th and 18th centuries, or even in the hypnotic techniques and suggestive practices. Clinical surface appears in the Kantian anthropological space occupied by alienism, by psychiatry, and by psychoanalysis as a method of dealing with symptoms and as a method of epistemological investigation. Finally, healing, or the cure, cure surface, includes contradictions between juridical and non-juridical forms of truth-telling. Contradiction between the real, as an experience, and the truth within a fiction. Contradiction between excess of unproductive experiences of determination and a deficit of productive experience of indetermination. Each politics could be defined by from and outside contradiction that I call constitution. That's the name of the book, the constitution of psychoanalytic clinic. That means something you have to lost in order uh, or in the interior of a practice power dispositive, in order to have an autonomous visible practice and that is denied in the very core of this practice since its constitutional process. A historical way to define the field of psychoanalysis beside normative, regulative, disciplinary or institutional procedures that's the aim of the book. In this sense, psychoanalysis implies the whole field of this politics and treatments and ways of cure and therapy. We cannot exclude one or more poles of constitutions. If we do that, we simply come out from psychoanalysis field. We turn from psychoanalysis to another thing as a kind of religious, educational, or psychiatric practice. The border of psychoanalysis could be, as I wish to demonstrate, the border of psychoanalysis could be redefined as internal borders from practices that came from outside from psychoanalysis, as rhetoric, as literature, as psychopathology, and as so many aesthetic formations. The geography of practices and the disagreements that makes the richness of psychoanalytical field depends on forcing or composing different accents in the poles of constitution of psychoanalysis. So, the end idea is that uh, if psychoanalysis has a political ontology, we have uh, a kind of counter, uh, counter effect to this uh, massive uh, unifying tendency 
we have a history of psychoanalysis. That means all the positions we have inside psychoanalysis field, theory and practice, belongs to different places. And all the places belongs to the same space. This is metaphysical. That, this is the way uh, metaf metaphysics operates since the antiquity. Space, place, space, and position. So, in order to have another psychoanalysis, a critical psychoanalysis, that's the, that's the, 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 the main aim of, of research in our days, we have to separate this logic of inclusion, inclusion. I mean, separate positions from places and separate places from spaces. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, psychoanalysis faces a problem. It, it faces a problem which paradoxically arises from its very success. Psychoanalysis has succeeded in implanting itself in contemporary culture to the point now that it's no longer true to refer to it as a peculiarly European or even a Western mode of thought. It is everywhere, in nearly every country of the world, implanted as a practice, certainly implanted as an explanation that people can draw on to make sense of their lives. It's taken root and flourished in US American culture in a manner that Lacan was already concerned with, very concerned with, half a century ago. But it's then operated as part of the globalization of psychology, as a frame for making sense of individual subjectivity. Today, neoliberal incitement of modes of individual self-governance around the world requires adaptation of some kind, adaptation to the market. And the kinds of problems that Lacan pointed to are still very evident, but now there's a twist. And the twist is that the adaptation today, the adaptation that Lacan was concerned with, calls upon a flexible, reflexive engagement with conditions of production and consumption, which also include the production of selves. And psychoanalysis of the kind we Lacanians value is also, unfortunately, eminently suited to such modes of responsibility and accountability. So bearing that in mind, with Lacanian psychoanalysis as part of the problem as well, I'm happy to include Stephen as a Lacanian here tonight with us. Now we Lacanians like to say all the time that we return to Freud, to the meaning of Freud, we say when we're challenged about the differences between what Lacan said and Freud said, to the meaning of Freud. And Freud took pains to explain psychoanalysis to a wider audience. and We're reaping the benefits of that work and the problems that it poses today. I think it's worth pointing out that Freud did not see psychoanalysis as providing its own distinct Weltanschauung or view of the world. And there are important lessons here for those of us who treat psychoanalysis 
as an overall covering explanation for every aspect of human experience and then try to apply the approach to explain human action to explain human action in psychoanalytic terms to explain it in every domain Freud argues back in 1933 that rather than psychoanalysis developing as a worldview itself the closest that it will come to a worldview is when it operates within a general scientific worldview that's the closest it comes to a worldview however even this worldview he says is, is carefully defined it's carefully defined by him in in negative terms for instead of providing a positive vision of how things are of how things should be this worldview such as it is he's very cautious about it is concerned with truth and it's concerned with the rejection of illusions as he puts it there's another problem with the notion of worldview that Freud notes another reason why psychoanalysis should be wary of turning itself into a worldview or even participating in a kind of worldview that pretends to provide a complete and inclusive system of knowledge and the problem is that psychoanalysis Freud says incomplete psychoanalysis is incomplete it makes no claim to provide a self-contained system I think we should read this note of caution as also expressing something of the nature of psychoanalytic exploration of contradiction and division psychoanalysis does not aim at complete explanation at a totalizing system of knowledge but at a relation a relation between the subject and knowledge in which both sides of the equation the subject and knowledge are defined by their incompleteness well regardless whether or not he followed his own good advice it turns out that Freud was badly wrong for it's been turned into a worldview by many of his followers psychoanalysis has taken form in Western culture as a series of overlapping systems of thought that are used by many in the social sciences today to interpret cultural artifacts but we need to take a step back and think about the role of psychoanalysis in our work to think about exactly what it is we're supposing of psychoanalysis outside the clinic and I suppose my book is somewhere between Chris's history of the constitution of the psychoanalytic clinic um, and Stephen's exploration of how psychoanalytic ideas resonate with phenomena outside the clinic. Uh, I'm concerned with that boundary between uh, the inside and the outside of the clinic, but from a, with a particular focus on clinical practice. Perhaps we feel a little beleaguered sometimes, for it seems that we're not taken seriously, we psychoanalysts, and psychoanalysis is mocked for being out of date especially in psychology uh, and obsessed with sex or whatever but surely that sense of being marginal is more a function of the enclosure of our own particular theoretical understandings of fantasy located in specific competing kinds of jargon a function of the sectarianism of psychoanalysis where the Kleinians are divided against the Lacanians, against the Winnicottians, etc., etc., rather than the marginality of psychoanalytic ideas as such. 
in one form or another, explicitly or implicitly, even if in versions of it that we disapprove of, psychoanalysis is all around us, precisely in the images of what fantasy is, what it might mean, why it should be contained, how it should be channeled. So my point here is that we need to shift focus from thinking of psychoanalysis as the key which unlocks fantasy to thinking about how psychoanalysis is itself the lock, which then has the key to open it and to confirm itself as a form of knowledge. Something of this problem has been noted by Lacanian psychoanalysts. Jacqueline Miller has pointed out that psychoanalytic interpretation has been turned into its reverse through the insidious accumulation of what I call in my book psychotherapeutic capital, the expansion of a discourse about therapy which incorporates psychoanalysis as if it's a form of therapeutic knowledge, as if the knowledge is important. This psychotherapeutic capital feeds what therapists and some psychoanalysts imagine the unconscious to be. The unconscious for us, Lacanians, is the discourse of the other, not some hidden material to be divined or excavated from under the surface. Lacan, in Seminar 17, emphasizes this in his argument that latent content is not what is dug out from the analysand, but is produced, produced by the analyst, produced by the analyst so that an interpretation, an interpretation that is given to the analysand as the giving of meaning should be seen as a construction. Interpretation, as Lacan describes it, as an authentically psychoanalytic interpretation, opens the unconscious as a psychoanalytic uh, phenomenon, as a phenomenon that is distinctive to the clinic. And this is one of the key points that I make in the book. It's distinctive to the clinic. Interpretation as cut, as what Miller calls interpretation in reverse, also opens this unconscious. It cuts against a psychological redescription of the unconscious that has become a pervasive ideological motif under capitalism. In order to open the unconscious when we interpret, we need to cut against the psychologizing of the unconscious. While Lacanian psychoanalysis requires a disjunction between the clinic and the outside world, psychotherapy, in contrast, attempts to run the two worlds together. And one way of conceptualizing this difference between analysis and therapy is to say that the Lacanian clinic is in capitalism but operates as a space extimate to it, not wholly inside or outside, while a therapeutic clinic is a space of capitalism infused by its contemporary forms of subjectification. This isn't to say, this is not at all to say that there are good psychoanalysts who are keeping it contained and bad therapists who are allowing ideology to seep into the clinic. Many therapists are doing psychoanalysis and many psychoanalysts are actually doing therapy. The therapeutic clinic is enmeshed 
not only in the moral political context, one in which there's a duty to reflexively work upon oneself and make all others do the same, but also in a political economic context in which the labor of the analyst and analysand gives rise to a surplus, surplus labor, which is the source of the therapist's livelihood, labor which structures the therapeutic relation as a class relation. So our theoretical and clinical work must attend to this disjunction between the clinic and politics outside the clinic so that the therapeutic reasoning that I'm concerned with does not operate as a closed ideological loop to confirm a particular model of the subject. And so it also includes a disjunction between views of the world so that psychotherapy cannot posit itself as an all-encompassing worldview, as a meta-language, as we say, which heals the divisions between different accounts of the world and the subject. So in my view, the problem lies in the way that psychotherapeutic attempts to dissolve the barrier between the clinic and the outside world um, uh, uh, need to, to, uh, uh, is the problem. And, and this also need, has a number of consequences for clinical work, including, for example, the attempt to dissolve the power relation between the analyst, analyst and analysand by, for example, the analyst disclosing something of themselves to the analysand, which is supposed to express a more authentically relational mode of being. Now, this is an understandable tactic, an understandable reaction to the dehumanizing practices of psychiatry, which I'm concerned with in the book as well. It's an understandable reaction to those dehumanizing practices and as an understandable reaction to the dehumanizing uh, practices of psychology, which has a notion of the benefits of prediction and control of behavior. So I spend some time towards the end of the book addressing the relationship between psychoanalysis also and spiritual attempts to solve the problem of alienation under capitalism. I attempt a materialist account of psychoanalysis some of our colleagues in the New Lacanian School have pointed out that, and I quote, the analyst does not interpret the analysand's unconscious from the outside. On the contrary, the patient's unconscious is produced in the analytic relation. That's Veronique uh, Vorus uh, makes that point, and it's a point I take very seriously. The symptom itself is, as Jacqueline Miller points out, produced constituted, he says, by its capture in the analyst's discourse, whereby, having become demand, it finds itself hooked onto the other. Analytic speech requires address to and response from another that is mediated by the terms of a defined social space, even, as Stephen pointed out, a portable space. It is, isn't only in a little uh, side room in, in a hospital or in a comfy uh, consulting room in Hampstead. I'm not at all claiming that we can put a stop to the forms of psychoanalytic interpretation that circulate outside the clinic, and that indeed would be impossible. As Stephen points out in his book, Psychoanalysis Outside the Clinic, and he made the point again this evening, the issue of whether psychoanalysis belongs outside the clinic is not, or not, 
is of less significance than questions about the effects of this migration. And it's the effects of this migration we need to keep focused on. It's sometimes easy to forget that the psychoanalysis we use as the root metaphor or competing systems of root metaphors to apply to written texts outside the clinic, that's what we're doing also in producing these books and getting you to read these books and we write things about the books and you know things are written and written and written and on and on and on, um, that this, this is actually concerned with speech. Psychoanalysis is concerned with speech. Psychoanalytic phenomena are a function of speech, a particular kind of representation, which is itself a function of a particular kind of social space, a particular form of organization, the clinic. There are peculiarities of clinical space. There's an asymmetry between those who speak, an asymmetry around questions of payment, around questions of disclosure. There are peculiar and distinctive contents to the speech of those who analyze and those who are analyzed. There are quite specific barriers between those who speak, marked by the couch and the um, abandonment of the norm of face-to-face -face communication when people are speaking together. There are certain kinds of conditions that make fantasy and affect possible and meaningful. The unconscious is not something dragged out from under the surface and shown to the analyst, but appears in the quite strange attempt to free associate. Our free association does not express unconscious contents, rather the attempt and failure to free associate, which is given a peculiar affective charge by the presence of another to whom one speaks, stumbles at certain points, runs up against certain kinds of blockage. Not all can be said. It's incomplete. And it's, not, it's what is not said that is what the analysis revolves around. This is what psychoanalysis is concerned with. And this is also why psychoanalytic training proceeds through the crafting of speech in transmission of technique as part of an oral tradition. There's plenty of writing in psychoanalysis. The writing is one vehicle for conceptualizing psychoanalysis. But the problem is that it also turns the psychoanalysis into a certain kind of discourse, scholarly perhaps, academic even, a certain kind of representation that misrepresents the practice. That's a problem that we face when we buy and we read these books, these three books that you'll buy after this session <laughs> included, a problem that it misrepresents the practice. As Christian Dunker points out in his book, The Constitution of the Psychoanalytic Clinic, there are more or less formalized structures of the course of psychoanalytic treatment and even of the clinical practice in which treatment is included, but the ethics that regulates its strategies does not guarantee the necessary passage to politics, through which psychoanalysis is included between other discourses to the point of easily being subordinated to them. An ethical act, which is something we're concerned with in the clinic, Lacanians are concerned with in the clinic, an ethical act, in contrast, disturbs the symbolic coordinates of the subject. And perhaps that is one reason. We should value this, value the, value the bitter recriminations of those who complain about the time and money that they've spent in analysis and the stupidity of it all, 
for it's these analysands who have taken a significant step into analysis, difficult steps through analysis, and then a step out of analysis to drop it. They're more true to psychoanalysis than those who go out into the world recycling psychoanalytic knowledge as a panacea for everyone else. Recycling psychoanalytic knowledge in such a way as to turn it into a problem for those of us at work with the unconscious constituted for us in the clinic. Um, I'm very keen to get to some questions from the floor, but I think what we could briefly do is just give each of the speakers less than five minutes just to <laughs> respond um, to the comments of their colleagues. Uh, Stephen? Okay, okay, I'll go, I hope, very much less than five minutes. Um, the talks just now were so kind of complex and dense that it's very hard to know how to respond on the hoof, and so I'm going to take up just a couple of points. It occurred to me, just as I was um, trying both to think and to listen to um, Ian's wonderful peroration there at the end, that um, I want to think about um, something around the issue of borderlands and borderlines. Borderlines may be better, better than borderlands. Borderlines, there are a number of different ones that have been referenced. Obviously, the one that's in our title. Sorry, is, you can hear me okay? Obviously, the one that's in our title is the border between what's clinical and the clinic and outside. We've also had um, borders between true and false psychoanalysis, I think, that have just emerged in some interesting ways. There's a very familiar tension that's been characteristic of the history of psychoanalysis almost from the beginning between the therapeutic, what, what can we call it, the therapeutic valency of psychoanalysis which try, and psychotherapeutic practice, which appeases hurts, and the analytic attitude which doesn't necessarily take that as its aim. I mean, most of you will know the really famous statement by Freud about, you know, why do we do psychoanalysis? We do it for two reasons, to understand the unconscious and to make a living, he says. Not, not to make people feel better. That's not the purpose. Okay. And similarly, um, I, I was, um, again, listening to both Christian and, and um, Ian, I was put in mind of the old distinction made by Philip Reef between the... Um, what he calls the ecstatic attitude of therapy, which will make things, what, sorry, make things whole, and the analytic attitude, which takes them apart. And more recently, um, Jean Laplanche has a quote I very much like, which differentiates between what he calls the narrative vector, making a story that works, and the analytic vector, which doesn't have that as its ambition. I think that's a very characteristic tension. So I've mentioned two, uh, a few borders so far, clinic and outside, true and full psychoanalysis, Psycho, the kind of therapeutic uh, valency and the analytic one. I wanted to just say a, a very brief word and then stop about some two things that came to mind as examples. Um, uh, first, from as Christian was talking, and then as Ian was, when Christian um, spoke very much about um, the practices that came from outside to structure psychoanalysis. It made me, uh, I had a quick association to questions about purity and impurity. And the case example I give very briefly is um, after the Second World War in Germany, where the German Psychoanalytic Association was reconstructed and was seeking to be brought, allowed back into the International Psychoanalytic Association. In 1951, um, they were allowed back in as a kind of new organization. But the question that had faced the IPA, the International Psychoanalytic Association at that point, was one about purity. 
Now, what they did not mean was, were these people in some ways sullied by contact with the Nazis? Because some of the psychoanalysts involved in the German Association had been. They weren't interested in that. They were interested in whether there was a genuine psychoanalytic practice that was not sullied by too much contact that had been forced on them with the psychotherapists. So the discourse on purity of psychoanalysis uh, in, the, in this very important post-war moment, 1951, when the German Psychoanalytic Association was allowed into the International Psychoanalytic Association as, an, as, as re readmitted to it, uh, the discourse was one of pure psychoanalysis. Can we make that pure? Not a question, for example, about ethical conduct or political allegiances. Um, the, second, the other point I wanted to make was came from near the beginning of Ian's talk, where he was saying uh, about how a kind of psychoanalytic culture saturates the world. Um, and again, it put me in mind of something which is, I think, a, a slightly at a tangent to that, and partly at odds with it, Derrida's famous intervention on what he called geo-psychoanalysis, where he points out that the Psycho International Psychoanalytic Association divides itself as follows. There's the United States, there's Europe, and there's the rest of the world. Um, for me, this is a really important moment which has given rise to quite a lot of post-colonial critique of psychoanalysis. So it seems that as psychoanalysis gets exported throughout the world, if Ian is right, so do certain modes of colonial assumption, which then become um, contested and are of great interest. I mean, I noticed Ranjana Khanna is speaking here on Monday night. She's written a very interesting, important book, I think, about understanding psychoanalysis as both a practice of colonialism and having the elements within it that allow you to get some post-colonial purchase. But it seems to me there is something that needs to be tackled about psychoanalysis from that very political outside. Sorry, that was Thank you, Stephen. Um, I was thinking about uh, this purity, impurity opposition, and uh, it matches uh, with the producing and consuming opposition uh, mm. where Ian uh, deals with and matches with this uh, segregatory um, uh, way of thought, separating inside and outside, separating what is, uh, what is uh, the truth, uh, authorized uh, discourse and practice from uh, heterogeneity, from mixture, from uh, um, false injunctions. So this kind of uh, opposition in, within psychoanalysis is a kind of uh, internal symptom. Uh, either we'll, we deal with this, either we treat this, either we confront this, or we are going to reproduce uh, uh, ordinary uh, segregatory discourse that uh, comes from either outside and inside the clinics. And I think uh, ethics isn't enough to deal with this. Uh, th this is the main answer uh, we, we found in psychoanalytic uh, inspired uh, or connected, uh, political connected discourse. Uh, we have to, to deal with this segregatory problem, uh, injecting more and more ethics. Uh, but I, I think uh, there's uh, another uh, step to, to reintroduce into ethics reflection the political dimension. It's something uh, that it's inherent to psychoanalytical space, as you call the, the metaphoric space of clinic, that uh, it is a space where you can uh, introduce and deal with politics, I mean power relationships, 
without um, appealing to some neutral position, either the analyst and even the psychoanalyst. So uh, I think history, and uh, especially a kind of political history, is, uh, is a way uh, to reintroduce politics into ethic, ethical practices, as well in uh, a way of reinventing the present. We, we need to reinvent the present of psychoanalysis in order to, to have some future. I mean, I think that this, that I think this motif of, of, of purity is a very interesting one, and I think that um, some of the uh, differentiations that I, I set out um, are, are made sharply, perhaps a little too sharply, but I think we need to make them um, as a starting point. Uh, we need to differentiate uh, psychoanalysis from psychiatry to repeat again and again that uh, break that, that Freud made from uh, psychiatry um, and to, to institute, to constitute, as, as uh, Chris um, describes in his book, to constitute psychoanalysis as something specific, as a practice that is different from medicalizing practices of, of psychiatry. Um, we need to th think about how psychoanalysis differentiates itself from forms of psychology and uh, of course um, psychoanalysis has looked to psychology time and time again to give it legitimacy to, to give uh, psychoanalysis an account of uh, child development which, is, uh, um, which warrants psychoanalytic uh, um, uh, stories of, of, of development and uh, to, 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 to give it some support to back it up at times when it, it is uh, coming under attack and, and as, I, as I was laboring the point just now, I think we do need to differentiate psychoanalysis from psychotherapy. And, and today, today, I think it's, um, it's, it's crucial to differentiate uh, psychoanalysis from forms of spirituality. But how we do that without constituting a psychoanalysis which thinks that it is completely pure is a real problem. Um, uh, it, 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 we don't arrive at something which is pure, which is very clear uh, if you look at the debates in psychoanalysis. And uh, um, although you know there's two Lacanians here, and 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 Stephen, who is fellow a fellow traveller, that's it. <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, uh, Lacanians have always been very concerned with the contribution of different forms of psychoanalysis, very close relation between Lacan and Klein. Uh, well, some of you will know that Lacan offered to translate one of Manini Klein's books and then lost the manuscript of oh, this uh, unfortunate kind of thing. But, but the point is, the point is that, that psychoanalysis is a field of debate. It isn't one kind of psychoanalysis, Lacanian, Kleinian, Widdicottian. It's the debate between the different forms of psychoanalysis which constitute it. In a, in a way, there's no such thing as pure psychoanalysis. There are competing, uh, uh, contradictory 
um, um, a, a, approaches to the subject. And uh, I, I think you also have to bear in mind that Lacanian psychoanalysis itself has been tangled up in each of these practices that I'm concerned with, tangled up in psychiatry, for example, uh, arguing for French psychiatry against the German psychiatry that became the basis of the DSM, uh, at other moments caught up in psychology with one of the largest groups, professional groups in the founding of Lacan's school, being psychologists in in 1964, um, contributing to psychotherapeutic uh, notions in, in a tactical, pragmatic way in order to get an audience, and uh, also, it should be said, deeply complicit with dominant forms of spirituality uh, in the West, something that I talk about at length in the book, part of a Christianizing tendency in psychoanalysis, which in some way is a betrayal of psychoanalysis. Um, and this means that an argument for the differentiation of psychoanalysis from these other practices um, uh, has, has, to, has, to, has to bear in mind the, the entanglement of even our wonderful, pure Lacanian psychoanalysis with, with, with these, these issues that, that we're concerned with. I'll leave it at that. Any questions from the floor or comments? Hi, um, I study a master in sociology here at LSE, and um, and I'm familiar with uh, psychoanalysis and Lacanian psychoanalysis also. And I'd like to um, um, there's this uh, Argentinian psychoanalyst which who who speaks about uh, about how psychoanalysis uh, was born somehow in opposition with science and with the discourse of science and, and with the, this subject that science was producing. And uh, in that production, there was a clear space. And that's when psychoanalysis comes in. And my, my question here is, what kind of problems, in so, like social problems, or, or problems that are outside clinic, are supposed to be out there to be answered? And so that psychoanalysis now, can, can you hear me? Okay. Um, so the psychoanalysis now is supposed to come to uh, understand this. What are the questions, what are the problematics outside the clinic? Um, because for me, it seems that many times you're talking about questions that have a lot of relationship with clinics, with, with the clinic. Uh, this differentiation between psychoanalysis and psychiatry it's very clinic. Uh, so. Okay, thanks. Any other questions? Maybe we can take two or three first. Hi. Um, I was really struck by um, the sort of this question of purity and impurity, and also thinking about the commercial allure of, uh, of psychoanalysis and thinking about something that um, Ian mentioned in. Um, the sort of unwillingness to discuss money and the money exchange that is always going to be part of, of analysis. Um, and I was thinking about, um, it, is there something about purity in thinking about the analytic relationship that we don't want to mention money, that it's not supposed to be an exchange that has any sort of commercial value and is part of the problem also with not wanting to think about analysis as part of 
a sort of uh, cultural economy of, of helping and of the sort of service industries is part of that, also not wanting to recognise um, an exchange that happens in analysis which isn't about uh, sort of pure ideas and, uh, and, and pure sort of a purer relationship. Another question? wondering um, how we got onto purity in talking about psychoanalysis. If it's some sort of brand, surely psychoanalysis grew out of and grew through the experience of mess and the mess within relationships as a, almost an evolutionary process. One or two other comments perhaps before we hear back from the speakers? Okay, well it's... Um to you. Who do you want? <laughs> me again? Yeah, do you want to start? Do you want me to start? Yeah, sure. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you very much. Um, three really interesting interventions. Um, the first one, I think I'm going to just answer it. The, sorry, the first question that was asked there was about, um, I understood it to be what kind of, what's, what's being asked of psychoanalysis? What kind of social problems are being given as being um, appropriate or even demanding that psychoanalysis speaks to it. Is that that's sort of right? Yeah, great. Um, and I'm going to answer it pretty simplistically, I think, um, uh, by saying that I think what psychoanalysis is quite often called on to do is to theorize um, the gaps in rationality as they materialize in particular social instances. So. You, just to put it very briefly, I mean, in political theory, for instance, it's very interesting to see how psychoanalytic versions of political theory bring in irrationality uh, into theoretical positions which otherwise seem to be based on the kind of forms of rationality, cost-benefit, that kind of stuff. But in terms of the actual concrete examples, well, they're all around, really. I mean, the most obvious one is violence. You know, it's violence particularly internecine violence, self-destructive violence, the kind of violence that doesn't seem to be explicable solely in economic or social terms. Anything where there's some mode of excess in operation, which makes you think, why, you know, why? <laughs> why should this happen? And reach around for um, answers to that that go beyond um, statements, for example, of personal or collective or social interest. Violence, war, um, the difficulties of maintaining one's identities, um, the intense investment that people have in racist ways of thinking, those kind of excessive moments. But I'd be interested, obviously, very much, actually, indeed, in what Christian and Ian have to say about that. The purity and impurity, just to track it very quickly and then to try and answer the point, I think it actually came from my example of, of the German Psychoanalytic Association and I think that's how I got into this particular conversation and where the language of purity, pure psychoanalysis was really up front there and it was, seems to me very symptomatically used to cover over another question which was who had been a Nazi and who hadn't in that very particular politi uh, political and historical situation. I think that's just in terms of our conversation where it came from. But this question about money which comes into it is a really interesting one. There's a lot to say about that which I won't, I won't say now but I do think 
that there is often something going on in psychotherapeutic relationships where there's a fantasy of the perfect relationship that will make things better, that's in operation between people. A kind of love relationship, for example, that will give something and make it whole. And talk of money feels like it sullies that. So there is a, an anxiety about introducing the material into that imaginary fantasy. And this is where I think I'm very much with many of the things that, that um, Ian was alluding to. That what psychoanalysis done with, does with that is that sometimes it buys straight into that, and other times, because it, is, it does put the material relationship of the fee, for example, so much up front, it allows you to get some kind of leverage on that, on that difficult issue. Um, and was there something else? Uh, how do we get on to yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I've already spoke about the last one. I think I, I agree that there's a real important way in which doing psychoanalysis might be um, direct you towards holding on to the idea of mess. Uh, maybe, um, but 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 that's part of that purity and purity thing. Just just a comment about. Uh the uh, non-clinical incidences of psychoanalysis and education of mm -hmm. and violence issues and uh, identity problems and, uh, and economics and so on. I, I think uh, psychoanalysis could help uh, either in a kind of diagnosis, a social diagnosis, uh, in, in, uh, in some interventions. And I'm thinking here in a very interesting author, you, I'm sure you, you know him, this is uh, Axel Hornet. Hornet uh, works on recognition theory, and I think psychoanalysis has a very strong and very uh, up-to-date recognition theory, either in Narcissus' theory of Freud and in Lacan's theory of master and slave. But uh, Honneth diagnosis uh, points that uh, we have lots of discourses and practices around love in uh, the dialectics of friendship. And uh, another enormous massive uh, amounts of uh, discourses between ethics and law. And uh, these two uh, groups of strategies uh, to deal with suffering, to deal with symptoms, and to deal with uh, social suffering uh, aren't enough. Uh, it, it, they are clear, uh, clearly, um, they are not enough to, to um, establish a kind of uh, social symbolic uh, act or a social symbolical um, uh, desire, the dialectics. And uh, th this is a theoretical problem, and is a practical and, and uh, a concrete problem. Psychoanalysis uh, have something to, to offer. I don't, uh, I don't see uh, so other uh, theories that deal with this precise question around producing productive experience of indetermination. Uh, this is a health <laughs> problem, if you want. Where are those devices that offers you the space to do an indetermination uh, experience? Since, if we, we agree with Hornet, we need some indetermination experience in order to, to have social bonds reconstruction, reconstructed. I mean, psychoanalysis uh, seems as it's 
an alternative to the other psychological practices that are around us. Uh, often seems as if it makes a, a radical break, but we, I think we have to remember that psychoanalysis is part of those practices. Psychoanalysis is part of the constellation of practices that um, have been described as the psi complex and described very well by, by Nicholas Rose uh, here at the LSE uh, in his, his history of the psi complex. Um, it really is part of the problem and it's, I think it's a real task to take some of the psychoanalytic ideas that we're concerned with, the way that they operate in the clinic, and to differentiate the specific things that psychoanalysis can tell us about the encounter between uh, analyst and analysand in the clinic, on the one hand, and the forms of psychological knowledge that are circulating in outside society and circulating in, in academic life. And psychoanalysis very often tries to attach itself to those other forms of psychology. I think one example is evolutionary psychology and evolutionary theory, unfortunately. And it's, it's one of the um, unfortunate and I think reactionary manifestations of psychoanalysis that it can think that it can give an account of, uh, of evolutionary developments, to give an account which in, in, in some way, as, as, as Freud did hope at, at one point, to give us an account in which, um, uh, of how uh, um, uh, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, um, a, a disastrous uh, error. But um, uh, in, in all of this, um, although um, uh, psychoanalysis uh, is, is an opportunity to break from these systems, uh, psychoanalysis is a form of, a form of ideology, but, but, but in a quite specific sense. We need to think about how ideology operates and how false consciousness operates. It's not that it's a mistake. It's not, it's not simply that it's, it's an error, but the kind of false consciousness that we operate inside in this capitalist society is a necessary false consciousness. It corresponds to the forms of commodity production and exchange that keep this world going. And we have to ask a question about the emergence of psychoanalysis here. Psychoanalysis emerges from all of the practices that Chris describes in his book. But psychoanalysis takes root as a, as, as, a, as a description and questioning of particular form of subjectivity under capitalism. And my argument in the book is that we could call the form of subjectivity that we live under capitalism, in which we're alienated from our labor, we're alienated from our bodies, we're alienated from each other, we're alienated from nature. We could call that, that fraught, difficult, alienated form of subjectivity psychoanalysis, and some psychoanalysts do call it psychoanalysis, but it could be given other names. Psychoanalysis is only one of the names for it. And what psychoanalysis does is to address something of the nature of that alienation. And what the space of the clinic allows you to do is not completely separated from the outside world, of course, but what, that, what the space of the clinic allows you to do is to step back and separate yourself from those alienated life conditions. And just for a moment, in a, a transitory kind of way, 
just for a moment to separate yourself from that, to break from it, and to think in a different way about what it is to be a subject and how you've been constituted as a subject. So psychoanalysis is constituted as a practice by capitalism, which is also a critical, reflexive practice upon capitalism. Much the same way that Marxism only exists under capitalism as the critical reflexive work that will destroy capitalism, so psychoanalysis is constituted by capitalism as a critical reflexive space that allows individual subjects just for a moment to break from it. Um, other comments or thoughts? Maybe I'll just add one. Um, are you suggesting then, Ian, that psychoanalysis just for a moment gives the conditions a possibility for a kind of disalienation? Isn't that overly optimistic? I mean, psychoanalytically, well, I mean, belief in this kind of moment. It's, it's, it's not very optimistic if you just say, just for a moment, is it? That's not, that's not very optimistic. But it's, it's a, um, isn't it a profoundly unpsychoanalytic thing to premise a belief that you will be disalienated? Even for a short period of time. Why should we believe that should be possible? Okay, it's disalienation of a particular type. It's disalienation in the sense that you speak, you hear yourself speak, and you connect as you speak something of what you are with what you are trying to represent. That's the, that's, the peculiar, that's the peculiar thing that happens in a psychoanalytic interpretation. Wait a minute. And it's not, it's not, it's not that the psychoanalytic interpretation is given by the analyst. It's precisely that the psychoanalytic interpretation is given in the process of speaking by the analysand themselves. But that's at the level of the individual. For anything approaching disalienation, which will lead to consequences for life under capitalism, that is, to the overthrow of capitalism, then you need collective practice. In that sense, psychoanalysis is deeply flawed. So does Lacan come together with Habermas in your account there? <laughs> Maybe we should take some questions, other comments, um, before things get out of hand. Any other thoughts or reflections? Comments, questions? Um, I'm just thinking about these moments in which uh, people grasp that the world might be otherwise, which I think is a very rough paraphrase of, you know, of what you were saying. And um, I think that to say it is impossible ever to see that the world could be otherwise is in a sense to say it's impossible to see that it's alienated because you can't con conceive of a, a non-alienated existence. So I think that actually to the extent to which one is engaging in what can sometimes function as an empowering practice, if you want to use the word empowering, then um, that comes in different sorts of forms. Um, and I'm thinking also, not, you know, there's the, the sense of psychoanalysis, what are the moments in which it gives a capacity to experience that while also experience how it isn't going anywhere just as such but it's an important thing to have and of course also in relationship to uh, Marx's concept of um, of alienation in which again there are moments but this time Marx of 
course, does stress the importance of social agency, not just individual agency. It is very much concerned with what are the conditions under which groups of people manage to have the same glimpse of possibility that the analysand has in the clinic. And whether you like it or not, or what you may theorize it differently, but the whole thrust of, um, quote, liberation, uh, liberation psychologies some of which are psychoanalytically influenced and others not, is some attempt to talk about the conditions under which people collectively experience their relations with each other in a way which doesn't simply reproduce capitalist individu individual relations. So I think we have to take account both of the importance of such glimpses which get generated within individual practices and collective practices and also the extreme danger of thinking that that's enough. Just a thought, really. Anyone last comment? We've got, um, I mean, it's pretty much 8 o'clock, so if anyone wanted to make one last interjection. I think I'm thinking in some some kind of cultural experience, for example, that uh, couldn't be grasped into a, a particular universal uh, relationship. Uh, things we can, uh, or experiences, we cannot say uh, this is under the law or uh, this is against the law. Experience that, uh, for example, Antigone uh, in, in, in the past uh, Greece experience, she is defying uh, Creon law uh, in some sense, and uh, she is de defending uh, the family uh, law of primary relationships in, in another sense. Uh, but the crucial point is we cannot define uh, if Antigone is against the law or uh, under the law. This is uh, not a not-determinative experience. This is an indeterminative experience, and a product productive one uh, in historical sense. Uh, the idea is we will still have those experiences uh, happening those days. But uh, which discourse, which practice, which social bond is necessary in order to, to recognize this? as a productive, indeterminative experience. Um, it's 8 o'clock. Thank you very much for coming. It's a very cold night. And maybe then the final round of applause.